Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this time by Squarespace and FSIM Space Shuttle. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by the voice you just heard, my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. How are you? Doing good. How are you? I'm good. We're we're back after Apollo 15. The kids are back in school. The boys are back in town. Right. Right back in black. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bla- black hole sun. Uh, here comes the sun. They're in space. Black holes in the sun are in space. It's true. Uh, Apollo 15. So we did that, which means we've got a month of news to catch up with. And I'm sure we're going to miss some of it, but we're going to try to catch you up. And uh, But we should probably start with some follow-up about which we rarely do i mean everything sort of follow up we're tracking a lot of stories space stories take long years and years and years <laughs> they, they to really go. Do. so on one level it's like i saw I, I just read the new yorker did this story i'm gonna go off script right now uh this week about the james webb uh space telescope it's a really long really good story liftoff listeners have probably already heard a lot of the stuff that's in the story because we we're paying attention and i didn't put it in the show notes because one we got a month worth of stuff to cover. Um, and two, like, I, I was thinking, are we just going to be talking about this again <laughs> when they try to launch this mm-hmm. thing? <laughs> so so that's an example of a story that we've been tracking since we started. It, we continue to track it. It continues. And there are so many of, of our stories that are like that. But very specifically, you have a little bit of follow-up about last episode when we talked about Apollo 15. It's a follow-up. That's what it is. It's a follow-up. <laughs> well done, sir. That's really good. Yeah, I came across this, uh, and you know how this is, right? You do a lot of podcasts, too. Sometimes you come across something, like, the day after you <laughs> publish a show. Uh-huh. Uh, that's pretty much what happened here. So this, uh, there's a link to CBS News and a link to this website where uh, Andy Saunders, who is a historian, is working on a book named Apollo Remastered, and uh, they being CBS News and Saunders worked together to publish some of the photos from Apollo 15. So these have been, in most cases, you know, scanned from the original film and tweaked, you know, playing with the color, uh, getting rid of dust and noise. They look amazing. And we have our modern uh, modern photo uh, processing skills, mm-hmm. right, that are not maybe the photo processing skills of 1969. Yeah, 1972, <laughs> it's right? Like even, it's yeah. You you know you can't just get them developed down at the photo mat anymore. So mm-hmm. you got photo. We got Photoshop. We got skills. Yeah, a couple things I wanted to point out that there's a shot in here of the control panel of the lunar roving vehicle, and like we spoke about last time, <laughs> the chairs are basically just aluminum frames with nylon. Yeah, like straps, and you can see the chair in the foreground. Of course, the control panel is fascinating. I like that the chairs in the foreground. Yeah, it's like a mini. Um, the, the control panel is like, like we said in the episode, it's like a mini limb. It's got this whole kind of like guidance system. And then, yes, you're sitting in a lawn chair. In a lawn chair, the world's most expensive lawn chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also some panoramic views of the area that they explored. Uh, these were these aren't original images, but they were created by stitching together several of the original still photographs. And they're really stunning. You really get a sense of where they were. And you've got Mount Hadley in the background. And at one point, they're like uh, three and a half kilometers away from the lunar module. And it's like a, it's a little speck. And you can see the lunar rover in the foreground at the edge of the crater. 
it's just really beautiful imagery. I, I definitely suggest you go look through these these pictures. And if you want to see a lot more of this than I do, uh, you can sign up to get more information about the book as it prepares to be uh, be published at some point in the future. So I, I plugged my email address in there, and I'm, I'm looking forward to ordering this book when it comes out. Yeah, taking these, this stuff and using these modern techniques, especially the panoramas are such a great idea, right? Where the field of view is not particularly great, but they, they essentially took shots that cover the field of view so you can um, just kind of push them together and get that panoramic view. And um, it's a great example also of showing sort of like what we said last time, which is that it's kind of like, it's kind of at the edge of a little depression. So the lunar module is kind of like on its, it's like a little bit tilted. Mm-hmm. And you can really see that in the photos, and it's uh, it's pretty awesome. So, yeah, thank you. That's a good uh, that's good uh, follow up there. I'm sad that we can only use that term maybe one more time. <laughs> I wish we had thought of it years ago. Yeah. Well, all future Apollo related material when we're done with the Apollo 50 series oh, will yeah. be considered Apollo up. That's a really good point. I hadn't considered that. We're making it up as we go along, everybody. Hey, you want to hear about Starship? Uh, yeah, let's talk about this. What What is going on in Texas? There's lots, is the answer. Lots of stuff happening. Starbase is busy. In Boca Chica, yes. So SpaceX has reportedly transferred hundreds of its employees from other facilities to Boca Chica, where they are working rapidly on Starship development. They uh, This is a pretty amusing thing, that overnight, one night, they apparently installed 29 Raptor engines on the Super Heavy, which is the first stage of Starship, which has not, remember, has not launched. The, the, the Super Heavy is this, uh, is the little rocket that we've seen do launches is the second stage. The first stage hasn't hasn't done it yet because it's big. It's Super Heavy. It's 29 Raptor engines. Uh, that's, <laughs> just... that's a lot. And then, one, and then the next morning, people are like, uh, there are all those engines are installed there. It's not the, I think, final... Number, uh, the final number is larger that they expect on Super Heavy, but they put these 29 engines on. They rolled it out to the launch site. At some point, there is a hot fire test that is expected. So, you know, clamp it down, make sure it doesn't fly into space, fire those engines off, see what happens, learn from it. You know, it's SpaceX, so it's, you know, it works or some of it works or it breaks or whatever. It's all part of the learning experience in order to get the, the, uh, the ship developed faster. Um, they also installed six Raptors on a new Starship, the second stage, uh, which is Ship 20, they're calling it. And the big thing that's going on is that they're petitioning the FAA for orbital for an orbital launch for the second half of this year. And the idea there is uh, you have to ask permission um, for your different uh, flight plans for different vehicles. And, uh, you know, at, at Kennedy Space Center, everything is kind of... They've done a lot of the work there because they launch there all the time. But this is a new place with a new rocket, and they basically have to do a lot of uh, of preliminary work. They have to do environmental assessments of uh, Boca Chica, uh, and they're doing that. But like they have to do that, and then there's a 30 day mandated public comment period. So it's it, SpaceX is is definitely kind of nudging the government to react faster to this stuff. But it's at this point, you know, it's they're not going to be able to launch it next week right they're just not um even if they were ready because you do have to go through this process um and, and there's been tension right between spacex and right. the faa I remember also after they had their uh, a recent explosion they had debris on the beach and in surrounding mm -hmm. areas and so all of that is a factor in this 
And if this thing, you know, heaven forbid, goes off on the <laughs> on the launch pad, uh, there's going to be debris. There's going to be stuff to deal with. And so all of that has to get looked at. Yeah, exactly. So that's an ongoing process. And I do get the sense that the FAA is trying to be more nimble, but it's ne- is it ever going to be nimble enough for Elon Musk? Probably not, but they're going back and forth about it. Um, just if you're curious what their plan is with this thing, what they're planning to do is launch, uh, and they did they did do a test stack, by the way, which made for some amazing pictures where they put the Starship uh, on top of Super Heavy to create the big, tall rocket stack. Uh, it looked pretty great, but they were just doing some fit testing. It was really like, literally, does it fit? <laughs> and what are the issues here? Because it's all part of the testing process. They're just doing it out in the open. But if they do stack this thing and do a test launch, the idea is that Super Heavy is only going to run for uh, less than three minutes. It's not a full-out kind of thing. They want to just do a test run of this, and then it will land... Uh, splash down in the the gulf and then uh the upper stage the starship would go into orbit but not stay in orbit and it would come back down without doing a complete orbit somewhere uh north of Kauai in hawaii so in the pacific ocean and that's their plan right now they want to do they want to do uh it would be a, a a flight test of Super Heavy, right? Getting it off the ground. And then for Starship, it would be the first time Starship had gotten to orbit. And then they would have to, then it would need to go back and return to Earth. And it would be a test of all of these things. And, you know, it's SpaceX. It's, you know, they're, they're, this is what they do is they test and they learn. And if things break, they're, that's fine. They learn why they broke and they fix it. So we'll see. But that will be spectacular to watch when they get to that point. They just need the okay from the FAA before they can do that. Yeah, I, th- I think it's really interesting that they have those the two different goals for this. And that's like very SpaceX, right? Like, oh, we have a lower stage and upper stage and there are different uh, stages of testing. And uh, we're just going to do both at once. And uh, I think if they can pull this off, you know, it, it'll be extremely impressive. But uh, as always with this thing, SpaceX learns from failure. So I think even if this is partially successful, they'll still count it as a win. Also, this is sort of related to... I'm putting it here because it's basically another SpaceX sort of story, which is just I want to give a little update about about what's going on with um, with the... Blue Origin versus SpaceX Starship Lunar Lander thing that's going on. When we last talked to you about this, Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos's company, had uh, appealed the decision, basically filed a complaint with the uh, Government Accountability Office uh, saying, um, we don't think that awarding just to SpaceX for the first uh, Artemis Lunar Lander was, was fair. Um, and that we should have been included, as we mm-hmm. pointed out, their bid was twice what the SpaceX bid was. Um, there are very clearly still some serious sour grapes from Blue Origin that um, I uh, read a story where somebody talked to somebody who were on the inside of Blue Origin who was like, it's really embarrassing that they're doing this. But they posted, there's a Blue, Blue Origin Blue Moon National Team webpage. And if you scroll down, we'll put a link in the show notes. There's a big infographic there that is essentially a bitter rejoinder <laughs> explaining how Starship 
and Super Heavy are terrible for lunar landings and how their plan is so much better than than the one that is offered by SpaceX and how Blue Origin, you know, refu- it's fewer launches and they don't have to do refueling and their lander isn't tall and all of the, these things are true. Um, I think... You know, I look at that and I think, yeah, and despite all that, you didn't get picked, right? Like, how, like, is this a badge of honor that you think your system is better, um, but your system was also billions and billions and billions of dollars more expensive and you didn't get the bid? So, boo who, maybe you should be working, right. which they are, and I'll get to that in a second. Maybe you should be working on your stuff rather than just uh, kind of belly aching about it like this. Like somebody in their marketing or PR department built this entire infographic that's just basically like Starship sucks, Blue Origin is better. And come on. So, yeah, come on. It definitely seems like just sour grapes. And yeah, I mean, I get it, I guess. Like you've you've put a lot into this and you're willing to uh, go to the mat for it. But also... This contract is just for the first one, right? There's still room in the future for you. Right. And I think that, you know, I think that that's part of what's going on is they want to make the point that even though they lost that bid, that they think they have the superior technology. Again, I would say that, you know, maybe you should look at the fact that you you failed despite having all of what you consider these superior things. And what does that say about you? What it, what it says about you is that you don't have a track record and your bid was way too high. And, you know, so like let he who, who is without sin cast the first stone, I believe is how that phrase goes. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, it, I, I think it's still quite possible that a second lander will be funded by Congress and it probably would be blue origin it's it's far from assured they did lose their repeal which actually might speed things along it's up to congress uh and you never know what's going to happen as things get appropriated through the the whole you know appropriation and budgeting process um a big story though is that jeff bezos uh came up to the table and said basically all right we're going to amend our proposal and we're going to waive up to $2 billion of fees from our bid. So basically, like if you can't pay for the first few years where you are, where we said you were going to pay us $2 billion, we just won't charge you for those $2 billion, which, uh, it, I mean, it's still going to be more expensive than the SpaceX bid, but it would give them... Uh, a second, it would give NASA a second contractor with a second landing system, which NASA wants that. We've seen that work with commercial crew. They really well, want to have, have well, we? We, no, it, we see that it really worked with commercial crew because they got one viable <laughs> vehicle about it, out of that. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but uh, this is good. And it really does directly address the implied criticism that NASA had of Blue Origin, which is not it's too expensive. It's SpaceX was willing to fund its own development of Starship. It's what we're doing. It's what I just talked about at Boca Chica. SpaceX is spending money on spec, uh, you know, essentially now that they've won the contract, it's not entirely, but like they were just spending money because they were going to build this thing and they know that they would have customers for it. And Blue Origin, which I'll point out again, is owned by the richest man in the world, said, no, NASA, you pay for it all. And NASA said, it's too expensive. We're not going to do it. So by Jeff Bezos and and Blue Origin saying, okay, you know, two, two billion off, we'll just fund this, that is... At least, you know, even if it's it's complicated, it gives that impression that like, okay, they're going to step to the table. They're willing to put in their own money to develop this because commercial crew, all of these commercial programs, the idea there is it's not just NASA filling the the 
you know, the, the bank transfers of whatever the contractor is, essentially, right? It's supposed to be a different relationship. And the idea there with SpaceX, at least, is that they've invested in their own technology and gotten government money, and it's ended up with something that's way cheaper for the government, and SpaceX has a viable vehicle. It's it's really good. Blue Origin should do that, too. And it seems like they are now at least willing to step up and do some of that, which might grease the skids a little bit in terms of uh, funding. I, I think I think Bezos literally, and maybe he was distracted because he's sort of he got a divorce. He was getting sort of disentangled from Amazon, where he's not going to be running Amazon day to day anymore. He went to um, space. He went. He went to space. We'll get to that too. He's got a lot going on. It seems like in all of that, he has refocused a little bit on Blue Origin now, and uh, realizes they blew it, and that uh, he should sweeten the pot with some of his many, many, many billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So, if I had to predict. I would predict that Congress will find money to take up. I mean, there's enough like there's the politics involved uh, and there's some some uh, visibility issues here that I think that perhaps they will fund the money to take up Blue Origin on its offer and fund this second lander so that NASA has lander options for Artemis going forward. Um Everybody does like again like it when there's more than one choice because you're putting all your eggs in one basket if you do that. So we'll see what happens. But uh, you know the Blue Origin versus SpaceX for moon landing uh, stuff is an ongoing story, and we'll see what Congress does. I think in bottom line, that's what will have to happen if you know the Congress will have to authorize to see if it will uh, if they'll get you know money now. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I think you're right with your prediction. I think that will definitely, uh, I think Bezos' actions will definitely move Congress to funding it somehow. They'll have to pull it from somewhere, of course, but I think they're going to be interested in that. Yeah, and it may just be, it may just be that they will fund that second. Like the the, I think the approach they could take is is literally saying, okay, here's what the money is on the table for the second one, so we're going to give NASA the extra money for that. And then, then you will have two because NASA's complaint all along has been you didn't give us enough money. You're asking for too much here. We're trying to get to the moon. This is the one bid we could say yes to that would get us to the moon. You want us to accept two bids? It's not going to happen because we don't have the money for it. We, you know, we've had to structure this deal very specifically in order to f- afford it. And so Congress's response may be, "All right, here's the here's the money for this other deal. Take both deals, and that would be okay." Real quick before our first break, I want to talk about the Perseverance rover. We've spoken a lot about how it is uh, part one of it will be a, a really a two-part mission. It's going to collect 43 sample tubes, or these titanium tubes, and then in the future, uh, they'll be rounded up and part be part of a sample return mission. Uh, mm-hmm. But it seems like they're having some issues with the collection. So uh, the way this works, the rover has this drill on the end of its arm, and the drill also holds the sample tube. And it drills, and there is material that gets pulled into the sample tube, and then that tube is processed uh, by the rover and then basically dropped off. And uh, what has happened uh, the last week or so was the first drilling exercise and the, it was supposed to be the first of these 43 sample tubes was to be filled. And that all seemed to go okay. The it, drilling went fine. Uh, all the mechanisms moved the way they were supposed to. And then um, towards the end of that process, the rover 
uh, has this probe that probes into the collection tube and it measures when it meets resistance and they know how wide the tube is so they can see how much volume of material they, they collected. And in this case, uh, no resistance was measured indicating that this tube is, is empty. And that's something that they have not had happen before, uh, including in testing here on Earth. Now, we know from previous missions, uh, most recently the InSight lander, that Mars's makeup can, can prove uh, difficult to work with in terms of drilling and pulling material. And so it may just be that uh, where they happen to drill first, that the, the material there was just not conducive to being collected for whatever reason. Maybe it was denser than expected. Maybe it was, uh, I saw one tweet from somebody speculating that maybe it was way more granular than expected and didn't really stick together. And so it was harder to collect. Uh, but all of that is, is pretty much uh, theory at this point. Uh, so the team is going to be using the camera on the end of the rover's arm to look more closely at the borehole that it drilled and see if they can understand more about the material that they were hoping uh, hoping to collect. And in reading this uh, this release from NASA and JPL, it really seems like that's the direction the team thinks this is, that it's a, an issue with where they happen to be, not some sort of systemic uh, systemic failure with the drill or the collection tools or something like that. So I think this will be something that unfolds over the next couple of weeks. I'm sure that they will also be trying to replicate this uh, here. Maybe they can have some more information based on those photos and try to see if they can make the hardware here on Earth act the same way. But uh, a little bit of a hiccup here at the beginning of Perseverance's first uh, scientific journey. What is is it about digging into Mars that I feel like we, we've got our new Mars mole story here. Steve. I hope, man, I I hope, hope not. not. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. So Mars doesn't want to be dug into. It's like, stop it. Stop Cut it. it out. Stop hoping me. Quit doing it. You're stealing my rocks. <laughs> you're, you're supposed to to take only memories, leave only footprints, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're stealing this is... my rocks. Mars doesn't like it. <laughs> if this is some sort of... A hardware issue or programming issue that obviously would be very concerning but i think it's too early to say that yeah. that's the issue well i hope i mean this is a big deal like you got to figure out how to do sample collection on mars so yeah. so we'll 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 keep watching it this will be one of those ongoing sagas of liftoff now yeah probably so all right well uh we have so much more to talk about uh let me take a break and uh tell you about our first sponsor this episode is brought to you by squarespace It's the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and run your business from websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics they've got you covered. Squarespace combines cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your home online and make your ideas a reality. Now, Squarespace has everything you need all in one place to create a beautiful and modern website. You can start with a professionally designed template. You don't have to be a professional web designer. It's fine. They've got templates. You can use drag-and-drop tools to make it your own. You don't have to write code or anything like that. You customize the look and feel. It will feel like your site and not every other generic site on the internet. It will feel personal to you. You customize the settings. You choose what products you want to have on sale. Anything you want to do with just a few clicks and all websites from Squarespace are optimized for mobile devices, of course, so your content will automatically adjust when it's on a little device like a phone or a big device like a like a computer screen. It just does. It knows. It does it. It's all good. You also get free unlimited hosting. 
There's top-of-the-line security and dependable resources to help you succeed. It's all in one place. That's just, you get it all when you sign up for Squarespace. You don't have to patch software or upgrade things. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support. If you need any help, they'll even let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name for your project, which is really convenient. Uh, and they have everything you need for search engine optimization and email marketing and anything else you need to get your ideas out there. So turn to Squarespace. When you want to turn your big idea into a new website or showcase your work with a portfolio, they have incredible portfolio designs, publish your next blog post, promote your business, announce an upcoming event, you name it. Now, Stephen, you use Squarespace for people who, who come to you and say, Stephen, you understand the internet. I need a website for my organization. Yeah, that's right. I've built a bunch of sites on Squarespace over the years. And it's so great at the end of a project to hand the keys over to somebody and know that they can update their content, add new pictures, add blog posts, add media. And they're not going to break their site because yeah. uh, the way Squarespace is put together, uh, all that content kind of flows the way it's supposed to. So you don't have to worry about like in some content management systems, oh, I uploaded a picture that was 200 pixels too wide and now my page doesn't load. Squarespace manages all that for them, and that puts the power to edit a website in the hands of everybody. So head to squarespace.com slash liftoff. You can have a free trial, no credit card required, and when you're ready to launch, <laughs> get it? Uh, use the offer code liftoff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash liftoff. And when you decide to sign up, use that offer code liftoff, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase, and you'll show your support of this podcast. Thank you to Squarespace for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. There was a situation with the International <laughs> Space Station, <laughs> and this is one of those things, and uh, maybe you had this too, I know I certainly did, where like just regular friends of mine who know that I cover space stuff like on a podcast, not even listeners, they just kind of know that I'm interested in it, like sent me links to this, like, oh my gosh, did you see this? So tell me what happened, because this story is is nuts. Yeah, it's not great. Not great. So uh, we talked about a month ago, Nauka, the Russian science module, which is going to be a new module at the International Space Station. And the short version is, uh, now it is. Yay. Hooray. But, <laughs> but big, big uh, problems happened. So first off, it had a bunch of like propellant and navigation issues that delayed its arrival at the station. Um, they actually... It it they delayed the uncoupling of the stuff that was in the spot where it was going to go because they're like you know is it going to get here uh, worried a lot of people but it did get there in the end and you know the Russian space agency is not particularly um, forthcoming, forthcoming about <laughs> yeah. this sorts of thing exactly right so cosmonauts got out connected to the ISS great. Uh, and it's going to do a bunch of stuff. It's Russia's first dedicated science module. They haven't had one up to now. It provides another sleeping space for another astronaut on the ISS, which is really nice, really convenient. And uh, this is great. The U.S. has been very supportive of it because you get the sense that they want to be as encouraging as possible of Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, because it really can't run the ISS without them. Like they're, they're a key partner here and they don't want to you know, relations are prickly enough with the U.S. and Russia. And, you know, the, Russia is talking about partnering with China on stuff. And, like, there's a lot going on here where they're, they're just trying to smile and not make a big deal out of things. But this is a problem. And, and it became a big problem because Nauka, um, it was steered to the station. Like I said, they were worried about it, but it got there. That means it has thrusters and main engine and an autopilot system. And after it had been connected to the ISS, the autopilot, which was still running, which I think is really weird and probably the root 
error here, um, thought it needed to turn and leave the space station. So it started to fire thrusters to turn it around, which had the effect of moving the entire International Space Station. Not great. <laughs> Not great. So, uh, Which also means, if you think about it, all force it just got connected to the ISS at this one point. Its thruster firing was putting lateral force on uh, Nauka, which was then imparting that force down across that connection to the rest of the ISS. So that was like the pivot point. And that means that that stress was being placed on the ISS from that point. So potentially quite dangerous. Um, it gets worse. No Russian systems were in contact with Nauka at this time. It was out of Russian radio contact because it was on the other side of the planet and they don't have their constellation of, of uh, satellites to communicate with their stuff in space anymore. Um, so the first people to notice that this was going on was NASA, where they noticed that the ISS's orientation was out of whack. And they're like, why is it doing this? The flight director declared a spacecraft emergency for the ISS. This thing has been flying for more than two decades. This is the first time that a spacecraft emergency was ever declared. The station's automated systems began firing counterthrusts to try and stabilize and get it back in the right position. Those are also on the Russian part of the station. So essentially you had two different Russian modules of the station sort of firing against each other. When it, they were around to Russia's radio control again for Nauka, direct control, the thrusting had already stopped. It seems like that thruster basically exhausted its whole fuel supply. But all in all, after all of this, the ISS spun around on its long axis, one and a half turns. So it Ooh. made a complete turn and then a half a turn. And then what they did was once they got this stabilized, they turned it back half a turn to so it's back in its right place. Uh, and the dangers here are, like I said, stress on parts of the ISS, all the connections especially, stress on the solar arrays, stress on the radiators, and stress on the docking interfaces. It is, you know, it was not... I mean, the thing is, everything up there, you don't know. You think it's all pretty good and that it can handle something like this, and it seems to have, but you don't know because you wouldn't plan to spin the ISS around one and a half times, and that's what it did. No, no, it, it seems really scary, and the astronauts themselves weren't in danger from the spinning. Uh, I think this article or another I read said that uh, basically, it, it was you wouldn't really have noticed unless you were like actively looking out the window, like, oh, what's happening? But like you said, you know, the space station is not some big unibody structure. It's a bunch of things bolted together over the course of yeah. decades, right? Yeah, you have to launch each of these individual parts into space, either on a on a regular rocket or you take them out of the sh mm -hmm. space shuttle bay, right? Like, and so to build something of its size, you've got to assemble it in space. And, and, and so they're all just uh, like little, uh, like Lego blocks or something you could think of them, but they're all just attached. And those attachment points are um, points of potentially points of failure when you put stress on them. Yeah, absolutely. And, it definitely highlights issues in the the Russian space program in terms of control of their modules. Yeah, it makes you it really makes you wonder. Uh, there's a really good piece at the IEEE Spectrum that we'll put in the show notes by James Oberg, who is a former NASA engineer and a journalist, space journalist, basically. Um, he 
his argument, it's a scathing story, it really is. His argument is that the most troubling thing here is the lack of attention to safety, which he says is a red flag. And he brings up Challenger in Columbia and says, the problem here is, first off, NASA spokespeople downplayed how much the, the station spun. And maybe they didn't know, but they didn't say they didn't know. They said they knew and it wasn't a big deal. And it turns out they didn't know and it was a bigger, much bigger deal than they thought. And it seems like the Russian space agency just lied about it and said that everything was fine. And he tells a story as a sidebar about the first module launching to the ISS and how while at uh, Houston, members of NASA and the Russian space agency were like popping champagne and toasting about how they had gotten the ISS project underway, actually it was in grave danger of failing and re-entering, and it was only sort of a last-minute save that got it to where it needed to go, and that the Americans didn't know about that for years afterward. Whoa. Um, so that just one of his little anecdotes where he's like, you know, there are some issues here about Russia saying, oh, no, it's fine, and it's not fine. And I think we don't – I haven't seen any real stories about what those initial issues with Nauka were – when they were trying to get it to the ISS and there, you know, as that was going on, there was a whole lot of skepticism about like, is this really working? Because they were very reluctant to share information and they have a track record of just sort of saying it's fine and minimizing all the, all the problems. Um, now, some of this, you know, is it a safety issue or not? Like some of this is not as much about ignoring safety as about politics and public perception and, uh, international relations. And Oberg admits this too in his piece. He says, like, the U.S. doesn't need to antagonize Russia. It does need it as an ISS partner. But Oberg is concerned that it goes more than that, that by downplaying this, you're creating a culture of minimizing accidents, which then, as we've seen, can lead to catastrophic fa failures. And I just want to read a line from Oberg here. People should read the whole thing on the IEEE Spectrum website. But um, what he says is, the causes of the NACA-induced space sumo match of massive cross-pushing bodies need to be determined and verified, and somebody needs to expose the decision process that allowed NASA to approve the ISS docking of a powerful thruster-equipped module without the on-site real-time capability to quickly disarm that system in an emergency. That's the end of, of the quote. If you think about it, we were talking earlier about SpaceX and Super Heavy and the FAA and Boca Chica. And any launch, any range like that, there is the range officer. They have the ability to blow up the vehicle if it goes off course. It's a very mm -hmm. important part of firing off rockets is if your rocket suddenly like swerves and is going to go and crash down in Cocoa Beach or whatever, you blow it up and it doesn't go there. And what Oberg's saying here is, now, wait a second, you've got a module with a big thruster on it, which is, keep in mind, not the thruster that did the spinning. There's also the rocket engine on the back of it. Like, you've got this thing, and it can fire uncontrollably, and you have no kill switch. Now, you're not going to blow it up if it's attached to the ISS, but, like, y you probably you should, should be able to, be able to turn to it off. <laughs> turn it off, right? Yeah. And not only could they not turn it off, but the people who are responsible for monitoring it can't monitor it in real time. Because they only get to see what's going on when it passes over their Russian tracking stations. And it's, a, I mean, how do you deny that? Like, you can say, oh, yeah, we understand the politics here and the optics and not wanting to anger the Russians so much because we do have to deal with them because it's part of the ISS project. But how 
did it get to the point where this could, this was allowed to happen and that there was no way, because this could have been more catastrophic and there would have been no off switch. So um, it's not great. It, it is, I would say, a major space incident. And Oberg's piece is basically saying, if you don't treat this like a major incident, it will create that culture of mm-hmm. just ignoring these accidents. And that will lead to people dying. I think he's right, uh, especially around the the language of not being able to disable this when it's in orbit. I mean, I would have assumed, honestly, Jason, I did assume until this that when something came up to the space station that those on board in a situation where something went wrong could take control of a spacecraft uh, or module in this case. And uh, on approach, but definitely once it's attached to the space station. And that not being the case really blew my mind, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yep. So there it is. That's what's going on. They got a new module there. That's great. But uh, bad stuff happened and we need to figure out why and why it was allowed to happen and get to that point. All right. Uh, let's talk about Jeff Bezos. Okay. Great. He went to space. We mentioned this a second ago. Uh, I really want to touch on this as a transition into the billionaire space race conversation, but uh, on July 20th, Bezos uh, and three other astronauts, passengers, people... Uh, Mark Bezos, Wally Funk, and Oliver Damon went to uh, went to Texas, climbed aboard uh, Blue Origin spacecraft, and their suborbital flight topped out at sixty six and a half miles or one hundred seven kilometers. That is above the Kármán line. Remember that everyone was spicy about. Oh, did you go to space or not? I don't think that really matters. But anyways. Um, <laughs> no, don't get me started on that. It's like space yeah. is where we're all in space. Again, uh, just you've heard it before. We're on a planet. Planets are in space. We're in space. Everybody's in space. It's fine. So so there is uh, this big hubbub that has come up in the, the weeks since. And it, it had kind of started after... Uh, Branson went up, but I think really it it fired up after Bezos' uh, trip. And I think his comment in the post-flight interview about everyone who shops and works at Amazon made this possible, like that didn't go over well because Amazon has lots of labor issues they need to contend with. And so all of a sudden you have regular people and you have people in Congress uh, really like talking about this. In fact, there is a proposed bill called the Securing Protections Against Carbon Emissions. It's space. Mm. Rejected. Yeah. Uh, and this would basically um, tax uh, suborbital and orbital flights by private companies. To Then the bill says to offset, you know, the, the climate impact of this, but also it's about billionaires have money and they want to go to space. So we should tax them for that. Other Congress people say, say no, uh, these guys are rich because of loopholes in our tax law, and so we need to deal with that instead. It's messy. Billionaires in space. Billionaires in space. Yeah, I mean, we already talked about it a bit with Richard Branson, so yeah. this is just sort of like the next step of that. And, uh, you know, I think, I think you could say there's a real 
cultural question about if the existence of mega billionaires shows that our economic system is out of balance and that I know that there's a lot of polarization in the United States, but I'll just say one could say we shouldn't have mega billionaires without being a communist, right? Like the idea that perhaps the rich should should not be able to get quite as rich as they've gotten and that, that money should, uh, that the, our economic system has led to this kind of balance where there are lots of poor people and lots of mega, mega, mega rich people who control most of the money. Uh, you know, whether, the, the reasons for that are complex and it's not just them not paying their taxes, right? Um, I'm glad that they are investing some of that money in things that I think are are good for humanity. There, there's lots of that money they're not investing <laughs> in space technology or things like that. Um, it's complicated, but uh, I, I think I'm more interested. Okay, without going back with what I said a month ago, I'll just say again, I'm more interested in people who are trying to move the human race forward than I am people taking a you know a cruise or something. Mm-hmm. That that's that for me. That's the the bottom line here. So, um, I'll leave it to others to decide whether Jeff Bezos should have all that money or not. Yeah, and uh, it's real time follow up from the Discord chat. Tom says that for commercial cargo, astronauts aboard the ISS can take control and send a back off command. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, there there are lots of the remote control capabilities. The problem here is that you had a you had a, a module. <laughs> attached it was attached yeah and firing and there was apparently no off switch so yeah or or even immediate alert uh not good not not good it's like part of your body rebelling against you <laughs> all right uh there's believe it or not because we took uh last time to do apollo uh there's even more to do there is and before we jump into it i would like steven to uh talk about how he crashed the space shuttle and how you too can crash or not crash the space shuttle on your own devices Stephen. that's right this episode of liftoff is brought to you by the f sim space shuttle application uh, i played it on my ipad pro for quite a while yesterday mm-hmm. uh, it's the long-awaited successor to skytail software critically acclaimed flight simulator for the iphone ipad and ipod touch And it simulates the space shuttle approach and landing in incredible detail and accuracy. It's completely new. It's rewritten from scratch. They have a custom rendering engine that delivers desktop class flight simulation on mobile devices with a unique combo of realistic flight dynamics, stunning graphics, and fun gameplay. Uh, Landing a space shuttle is really hard, but they've got you covered. There are several tutorials included with varying degrees of autopilot assist, so you can kind of ease your way into it. And they have this really neat analysis program and a scoring system. It will tell you where you went wrong and how you can improve your next landing attempt. Beginners like me can use the rectangles uh, that visualize the desired approach path to be guided right to the touchdown point. Or you can turn that off and rely on instruments in the heads-up display instead. Like I said, I played this on my iPad Pro, extremely immersive, and this simulator is beautiful. You can be within the cockpit, you can be behind the shuttle, which is kind of the view that that I prefer. Uh, you can also like have cameras around the shuttle to see it from different angles. It's really fantastic. So go to fsim.com slash liftoff right now, and you can get FSIM Space Shuttle for just $4.99. 
There's no ads. There's no in-app purchase. They don't collect any personal data. Just a one-time upfront purchase of $4.99. You can get it at fsim.com slash liftoff. And of course, I'll have a link in the show notes for you as well. Our thanks to FSIM Space Shuttle for their support of the show and Relay FM. I'm coming in low, Stephen. I'm coming in low. <laughs> yeah. The Space Shuttle basically fell out of the sky, and uh, I've played other flight simulators, and boy, does the shuttle feel different. It, it, they did a good job dialing that in. Oh, I landed it at Kennedy. I, I got down in one piece. That's impressive. Very it didn't good. look pretty. Yeah. My first one was real bad. I bounced it off the grass. Uh, it's time for the SLS segment, Jason. Oh, yes. Let's do it. Uh, the SLS segment, of course, is a space launch system segment, and it explains geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering, achievements, news, and trivia. Boo! SLS segment. Boop! <laughs> Uh, space computers. Let's talk about space computers. Okay, I love so, it. So, crews at Kennedy Space Center have loaded the flight software onto the Artemis One SLS core stage. Of course, this core stage was at Stennis Space Center, where they had uh, their test firing events, and the software loaded onto the core stage flight computer is different uh, for the test firing than it is for actual flight. So they take that off, they load this on, I assume that involves some sort of like NASA USB stick, but I couldn't find confirmation of that. And uh, this software basically manages the rocket from its time on the pad all the way through its uh, its flight. And so it controls uh, avionics, it controls uh, stability, uh all of its uh, control control surfaces. So when it has to pitch down range or throttle back and throttle up, all of that stuff is controlled by the software. Uh, this took years of work uh, by teams in Huntsville at Marshall Space Flight Center. They have this big systems integration lab where they run simulated launches. Uh, they had uh, over 300,000 different mission scenarios that they could run against their software to make sure that the decision-making that was made by the rocket was the correct thing. It's come a long way from the Saturn V is what I'm saying. And uh, what's, what's neat about this and what I didn't realize is that the software is designed to be tested and certified for each launch window and so say that you're supposed to launch on a Tuesday and that launch gets scrubbed for whatever reason, and you're going to try again on Thursday, they go in and test and change variables for that Thursday launch window because things like temperature, things like wind speed and direction, all of those things can be different launch window to launch window. So really up until the last moments before launch, they are... Uh, changing variables in the software, and then once it leaves the pad, this uh, these flight computers and the avionics take over, and uh, there'll be more testing. They have they still have to stack Orion on top, and they'll they'll do more testing with the integration because the spacecraft have to talk to each other. Uh, but yet another step on the way towards launching the uh, the uncrewed Artemis One. It's good space computers. Yes, I like it. I like it. You gotta, you gotta have your computers working right. That's true. You gotta zap the PRAM, rebuild the desktop. It's old Mac, Mac jokes. Old Mac people yeah, jokes. That's right. Hold down the option key. Mm-hmm. Oh no, my uh, extensions are conflicting. Hmm. Uh, 
The other SLS story I just want to touch on quickly is the Artemis One CubeSats. And so in the if you if you picture the SLS or look at a picture, the adapter between the SLS and the Orion is basically a ring, and it's what mates the two spacecraft together. And inside that ring, uh, there are uh, basically shelving. It looks like shelving units. Like it's like you went to IKEA and put some like wall shelves on the inside of your rocket. And uh, that's where Artemis One's uh, various CubeSats will be released from. Some are released uh, in low Earth, low Earth orbit. Some are released around the moon. And the first two have been uh, loaded on. So uh, the first one is Near Earth Asteroid Scout, or NEA Scout. Uh, is it the first CubeSat to travel to an asteroid? So this one will make some history. Uh, it's also propelled by a solar sail, which our friends of the Planetary Society have been big backers of this technology. Basically, you have uh, a large area of material, This, in this case, for the CubeSat, which is not very big. It's about 925 square feet, or about 86 square meters, so pretty big. Uh, and it the, the idea is here is that it catches uh, and is propelled by the... Uh, the particle streaming off of the sun and the solar wind. This thing is outfitted with a high-powered camera. It will take photographs uh, from a near-Earth asteroid. And the idea is that this asteroid is pretty representative of asteroids near our planet and ones that, of course, could become um, destinations for future missions, either Mm. robotic or maybe even human exploration. Uh, So they're going to look at its... uh, shape the, the rotational properties characteristics of this uh and this cubesat uh, will be uh in service for approximately two years on this mission pretty cool love it love a cubesat mm-hmm. it's good well we talked about perseverance right it had two kind of chaser cubesats mm-hmm. uh reporting back what was going on so this technology, which originally was designed for low-cost, really research-driven satellites in low Earth orbit, they're finding use for it all over the place, which I think is fascinating. The other, which is called Lunar Ice Cube, that's not an acronym, it's just Lunar Ice Cube. It's just a fun name. Just I love it. a fun it. name. Uh, it will search for water, ice, and other resources from above uh, the surface of the moon. So this one will be uh, ejected from this uh, this adapter much later on in the mission. And it has these like prototype, but really, um, I did a little reading about it, but the very high tech miniaturized electric thrusters. And it will also rely on gravity assists uh, from the earth and the moon. And it will uh, make passes over the moon to look for uh, water and other materials and ice, um, including uh, uh, liquid and like actually vapor, water vapor, uh, that could be useful to future missions and uh this will last about six months uh and uh again doing doing work that i don't think the i don't think cubesats were originally thought of being able to do um but it's pretty cool and this is also special to me for kind of a personal reason is when i was at marshall in 2018 for the nasa state of the union uh and i've mentioned this before i got to see this flight Hardware. So I have a picture in the show notes of this um, adapter ring, and you can see what I'm talking about with the CubeSats and where they load in. 
Uh, you can also see if you zoom in on the picture, the signatures of the team that worked on this hardware, they were able to sign the inside of it. And so this uh, this little part of Artemis 1, I've seen in person, up close in person. So uh, anytime I see these CubeSat stories, I always think about that trip and how cool it was to see flight hardware, because that's always a real treat. Nice. Mm-hmm. Also seen one of the uh, commercial crew uh, adapters on the space station. I mean, I also saw one blow up. But the one that actually made it, I've seen as well. So it's good. So we got a couple things left. We have some breaking news that I've added to the end of the document uh, that I can talk about. But we okay. really need to get into Starliner, this second commercial crew vehicle, because um, it yep. was going to have a test flight, but that hasn't happened yet. It, it didn't happen. Yeah, it was going to do its second test flight this week. It didn't happen. On the day of the launch, there was a problem with 13 different valves on the spacecraft, including an indication that some of the valves were closed when they weren't meant to be. The valves are important, right? You got to fly your spacecraft. They connect to thrusters that allow the capsules to abort in an emergency. They help the spacecraft maneuver while in orbit. Like, Which were issues on the first test flight. Now, they said mm. it was due to software the first time, but like, hmm. Yeah. So they they ended up ultimately rolling it back into the vertical integration facility where they put it together. And the question now is what happened and what's going on? And, you know, the big question is, how is it that they have non-functional valves on a spacecraft that was just sitting on the pad ready to go? Like, how did it get to this point where they where they're... Yeah, and, and, we sh- and we should say the flight was initially scrubbed because of the incident at the ISS we spoke about a few right. minutes ago. This was right. supposed they- to happen right in that time frame, I think the next day. Yeah. And they said, we're going to wait. And then this issue is... Uh, announce and so yeah and, and they, there was a story that came out that was sort of like good news we have unstuck seven of them bad news is six of them are still stuck it's like what what and there's a ticking clock here because there are only those two international docking adapter ports at the iss crew dragon is at one cargo dragon is going to launch later this month and is staying until the end of september sort of a month stay for the cargo ship and there's a uh, this is going up on a, um, an Atlas V. There's another Atlas V launch for the Lucy asteroid mission, and that has its own launch window. And they don't, you know, they they have to focus on one Atlas launch, and so that might conflict. And they might at some point, if it gets pushed back even further, they might make the decision that they need to prioritize the launch window for the Lucy asteroid mission, which would push it back further. I, you know, everybody's acting optimistic here, but I got to say it, this seems really bad, like really bad. This was the, this was Boeing sort of like, we got it all under control thing. And they have a hardware problem that days later, they seem to still not understand. Mm -hmm. And that is, that seems rough, right? Like, even if you got all your software in a row that you said that was like, okay, we got it. We, we have some software issues. We're going to commit to better quality in our software. We're going to figure this out. Uh, your your valves are stuck like that's a that's a vital hardware issue on a spacecraft that they seem you know i just maybe i'm wrong here but my my sense is this has gone on long enough now that they don't really understand what's going on and that's that's a bad sign for the uh the chances of them turning this around fast and if this had launched uh, and these valves have been stuck, like the, like they seemingly were, <laughs> on the pad. That would have been two failed test flights. Yeah. And so, in a way, the delay is good if they find this and fix it. But at the same time, like you said, how are there still issues with this? And how are those issues 
present when you were already on the pad. I mean, I get it. One thing, if it happens in that that uh, assembly building that ULA has, and like you get it all down to Florida, and then you realize, oh gosh, there are these issues, and you fix them before you roll it out. But when you're ready to go, that does signify that this spacecraft is is ready, yeah. and you don't roll it out of the pad uh, if you think or know something is wrong, and that is definitely troubling and i don't know when this will go my my guess is it's gonna be a little while not only due to the scheduling issues you mentioned but i think that especially after all the software stuff right a year of work to untangle the software issues and you know nasa embedding itself all throughout boeing's teams to to solve these issues i would imagine that nasa is going to be like okay we got to see what happened here as well. I don't think to this point they've said that, but I have to imagine the longer that thing sits and they try to figure out what's wrong, the less likely NASA is going to give them the green light to for this flight test until they really know all the way through what happened. I said earlier, and we chuckled about it, but like this is one of the reasons you select multiple vendors, if you can, for one of these sorts mm-hmm. of missions. It's not to get two vendors up and running. That's fine. It's also to spread around the risk so that if one of them comes up with really huge problems, that's okay because there's another one. And in this case, SpaceX made it and Boeing is having a lot of trouble. And imagine if this was just Boeing and we were, you know, talking about how it was now potentially going to be into late 2021 before returning to, you know, the year of commercial crew, right? Like, we we that that pressure is off but here's this whole uh it's it's just a good example of of spreading the risk around um and i feel bad for everybody involved in this and i hope they get it fixed um but it is uh this they were really looking for some good news after a lot of tough times with starliner and here we are again yeah i mean everyone wants to see them succeed and and it's good for nasa and commercial crew if it does but they've got to they got to get it right because this 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 hardware is destined for astronauts being on board. And now you would have had two launches where the first one they said you know astronauts could have overcome the software issues. But if you have valve stuck and your your escape uh, hardware doesn't work in case there's an issue on the pad, or you go to make an adjustment in orbit and you can't do it, I don't think astronauts can overcome that. That those hardware issues. And so this one, in a way, is actually scarier to me than mm-hmm. the software issues they had last time. All right, some breaking news here at the end. Uh, this went up just as we started recording. Uh, we've talked about the space suit issue here before where the Artemis mission, the lunar missions, need new spacesuits. The ones designed for the International Space Station are not only decades old, but they're not designed for use on the lunar surface. They're designed for use in low earth orbit, you know, around the outside of the the space station. And so NASA has been working on new spacesuits for quite a while. And when we talk about programs within NASA that get jerked around by various presidential administrations having different ideas of what NASA should be doing, the suits are one of those things. Uh, you know, designing a suit for Mars, then you go into the moon, then we're not going, you know, all that stuff uh, moves the the goalposts. 
And uh, the NASA's Office of Inspector General has been looking at this issue, and they said that NASA is on track to spend more than $1 billion on spacesuit development. Uh, but here's the problem. The first two suits won't be ready by April 2025 at the earliest, uh, according to the OIG. That means that Mike Pence's 2024 mission goal, which like under Bill Nelson and the Biden administration, they haven't really gotten rid of the 2024 goal. I don't think they preach it as hard as as Mike Pence did under the Trump administration and, and, and as Einstein did. But on paper, I believe that is still the goal for Artemis. Yeah. And uh, the OIG is saying, um, it's not going to happen. You may be able to get to the moon. If SLS and Orion already, <laughs> you can't get out, uh, but you can't open the door. And so uh, that's obviously um, a problem. And uh, this this report goes into more detail. I just pulled a couple of things out as I was scanning it. The, the $1 billion comes from uh, $420 million spent since 2007, again, well before the Artemis programs, way back in the day, uh, with $625 million uh, more planned uh, through 2025. Hmm. And uh, this new suit has uh, parts and components being supplied by 27 different companies where the uh, the previous ones, like the spacesuits on the International Space Station, just had two contractors. And so there's some concern there as well that kind of like the SLS, when you have all of these cooks in the kitchen, which is exactly what Elon Musk said on Twitter in response to this uh, you you run into complication and expense that maybe aren't super necessary. And so there's definitely concern there as well. Uh, Musk also just said, hey, you know, we could do it if you need us to. <laughs> okay. Yeah, of course uh, he did. It's unknown if SpaceX has a suit program for lunar excursions. I would say they probably do. They haven't really talked about it. Uh, the suits they design for Crew Dragon are really flight suits. You're not getting out on the surface of the moon. You know, you need to be in a pressurized um, space, I, I believe, for those uh, those suits to be safe. But, you know, I kind of like the moxie sometimes of Elon Musk. Uh, like, hey, we'll do it. Of course, you know, if SpaceX is going to build them, they'll either be ready next week or in 2026. So they may be yeah. slower than NASA. So who knows? Exactly. I don't think NASA is going to turn to Elon Musk for this. But uh, clearly there's some issues with this, uh, this suit and the suit program. And on one hand, it's not surprising because we've been talking about this for a while. But on the other hand, it's like not what people think of when they think, oh, we're going back to the moon. You're just kind of like, oh, yeah, we'll have suits. And they're a much bigger deal than, than they think they are. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's time for commercial suit. <laughs> maybe. All right. Well, thank you for that update. Just have more than one company involved. Yeah. It's just another uh, nail in the coffin of the uh, the already sort of fantastical 2024 Mm -hmm. uh, date, which I think that they're just basically approaching it as, look, the date's going to be what it's going to be. We're not going to shift it yet because we're, you know, still figuring all this stuff out. And they, they know that it's not going to be 2024, but they don't know when it's going to be. And that's a long way off still. And, you know, until they do Artemis 1, they're really going to have no idea. And they don't benefit be. by canceling that date. All that does is no start a story of NASA's not ready. And I, I, yeah, I don't think they can judge what the new date would be, right? So mm -hmm. until you know, just let it lay there. Just like when we went to Johnson Space Center and there were all of those um, those dates that were in the past about things that hadn't happened yet. You just let it let it sit there for a while. They'll get to it eventually, point out that that hasn't happened, that SLS didn't launch in 
2017 and it's fine. Commercial crew didn't launch in 2017, 2016. It's okay. It's okay. We'll get there. Well, I think that does it. I think so. If you want to read more about these stories, head on over to our website at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 156. There you can get in touch with feedback or follow-up. You can also become a member to support the show directly. Thank you so much uh, to those of you who are members. While you're on the Relay website, check out uh, a show called Focused. It's by our friends David and Mike. Uh, They talk about struggling to focus and the distractions we all have and, and how you can really work on this skill of focusing at the task at hand. Uh, it's a fantastic show. You can find it at relay.fm slash focused. Uh, you can find Jason and I both online. Jason is Snell on Twitter, and you can find me there as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all.